Yeah. All right. So today we are joined by a fellow co-worker and amazing person, um, Heather. Heather is here to talk to us today about uh, working with faculty. And we might throw in a little uh, work-life balance here just to keep it honest. <laughs> so welcome, Heather, to Disposable okay. Design. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so um, let's go ahead and kick it off by talking about um, working with our faculty as kind of a subject matter expert. So as okay. an ID, um, how, do you, how do you provide support? Well, let's just start with some best practices. What do you think some of the best practices is when you're working with SMEs? Well, I think that depends on the kind of SME that you have. And, and in terms of academic faculty, um, they're very different than working with like a tertiary corporate client, in my experience. And so I, I do do both. Um, and so uh, but in terms of academic faculty, they tend to be very passionate about their their content. And there tends to be a lot of content. And so my job is to tailor the content and work with them to develop the curriculum, one, and two, to find a way that that curriculum is going to work in an online format. And that's where my expertise comes in. So it really is about finding a balance between their expertise as a faculty member and my expertise as a subject matter expert in online learning, and then coming together to develop something that's going to work for the student. And so that comes with a variety of different kind of hats that we wear, right? So I that you're going to say challenges. Well, <laughs> challenges too. Challenges too. Sometimes it 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 does. It it's a very rewarding experience, but it's it is very challenging, right? And um, the the big thing that it comes down to is is developing trust with the faculty and finding a way to collaborate with a variety of different types of faculty and different types of personalities. And some faculty are easier to work with. Some faculty have bigger personalities and are a little bit more um, kind of gung-ho about this is the way that I want it and that's the end of it. And so you have to kind of figure out a way to sort of manipulate them into getting what you need them to do. <laughs> <laughs> in like the best way possible. And then at the end of it, you know, you also want them to be happy with the product. Um, you know, so it's it's definitely a balancing act. It's it's a gentle balancing act. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting it mildly on some days. Um so when you're developing a course navigation, let's just start from there. So I have worked with people who have opinions about course navigation. And and the reason that we're actually even doing this particular podcast is because it 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 was a request from a um from a listener. And, and I think this is something that that we all struggle with as IDs is working on that relationship and making them understand no we're not doing this because we're control freaks. There really is a science behind it. So just starting at the navigation level, how, how do you handle that? So there's a couple of things that we do. Um, number one, if they're very research minded, which some of my faculty are, I will literally bring the research with me and I will highlight the good bits. Um, I only have a few faculty I have to do that with, but I've had to do that three times in my career. <laughs> so, and you literally give them <laughs> what it is and you say, here's the good bits. 
read that. Let me know how that comes out for you. Um, and and it's worked. I should have done that. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have to, if they're really challenging, sometimes you have to let them fail for a semester and hope that they fail up um, so that they trust you next semester. So that's an option. But what we're really trying to do is is develop trust. And so I try to have conversations with them and sit down and say, what do you not like? And I think that's the best solution is, is sitting down and saying, what are your concerns? Because what I found with faculty is that it's not necessarily that they don't want to do the thing. It's that they're afraid of the thing. You know, the thing is new. Yeah. yeah yes. The thing is new. The thing is shiny to me, but the thing is, you know, looks like razor blades to them that they're going to walk across um, on a tightrope. You know, so they're you not real about, thrilled about any of that. I want to ask you something about what you just said too, as far as you let the faculty, you know, quote unquote, you, well, you don't let them, but they say they, they fail in the semester at a certain aspect of their, of their online class. Mm -hmm. And then you get to meet with them again, they come back to you and you, you work with them to identify what actually happened and why. And mm -hmm. that discrepancy, I think, is something that, that I'd like you to talk about where you maybe you don't have research, but now you have data from experiencing and data from their classroom and you have a faculty member that's in front of you saying. This didn't work because of and maybe it's not exactly what, you know, you think happened. So how do you take your experience, your research, your education and everything and convince the faculty member of the reason why something didn't go the way that it that it that it did regardless of whether or not it's and i told you so and you warned them about it ahead of time um because that does happen too but but say it's it's a new situation you didn't predict it they didn't predict it you look at it as a quote-unquote failure like you said before which is a, a a point of concern to be adjusted for a future course is what we mean when we say failure um like the students lived right like everybody got out of the class whether they got a grade or not um, so when we talk about failure at our jobs, that's what we mean. It's, it's opportunities for, for, for maybe even dramatic improvement. So what do you think about, about matching those expectations to the, at least to the reality that you perceive? Yeah. So that's a great question, Thomas. And it's a complicated answer, right? So at the end of the semester, I make a point to meet with the faculty and um, I had a very good mentor that really encouraged me to do that when I was trained. And I open with what went well and what didn't go as expected. And a lot of times they start with the what didn't go as expected. And so you have to be really careful about not rubbing salt in the wound and it's interesting from a design standpoint, because a lot of times, even though I'm not directly involved with the students, I do indirectly see their feedback. And I see it through kind of their grades in the course. I can see it through them talking to other faculty about the course and then that other faculty sharing with me. Um, and a lot of times they will email the faculty themselves that is teaching the course um, and say, you know, this didn't work for me. This was terrible. I don't understand this. I, I didn't get how this worked. And, and sometimes that happens at the end. And sometimes that happens in the middle of the semester where, you know, we have to change it. And a good example of that is I had a faculty a few years ago that decided to do a project in the middle of a semester. And she 
she kind of decided last minute she was going to do this. She was a newer faculty. And I said, okay, I mean, if you feel comfortable doing this, game on. But just make sure that you've really outlined it to the students. And I was a little concerned, but I felt like it was it was solid enough that it, it would work. And at the end of the semester, she came back to me and she's like, we're never doing this again. And what ended up being the heart of the problem, once we got down to it, she, you know, she's talking a lot about the student feedback. And I think that's really important is one thing that she did well is she talked to the students and the students were telling her, I didn't understand this project. I didn't understand what the requirements were for this project. And that gave me an opening to say, well, did you use a rubric? You know, how, how did you present the project? Did you have examples of what you wanted them to do? And she's like, well, no. Okay, well, then those things are things that we can add, you know, this coming semester to see if it goes better rather than completely trashing, you know, a, a good idea. And it did. It, it went better. It went a lot better. And so she continues to use that project now. And actually other faculty have adopted it even because she's had another semester, or, well, now several, to perfect it. But you do have to be flexible in designing for online because sometimes things that you think are really good ideas that sound good don't always turn out the way that you think they're going to. <laughs> I think it's important here to point out that you also have classroom experience. And yes. a lot of IDs don't. And I know from being in a classroom, you learn pretty quickly that if something doesn't work, you don't just toss it out, you adjust and 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 change course. Mm -hmm. And I, I see that in the way that you approach design. And honestly, I think that is the way that every designer should approach design. Just you said it, you hit it like right on the right on the head. Just because it didn't work doesn't mean it was a bad idea. So I, I love that you brought up using that that opportunity as a, a way to get in and kind of like tweak them a little bit. So um, if you are a designer that does not have classroom experience, if they come back and say it sucked, don't just oh that well I, I suck as a designer right no you don't I mean let's talk about execution and what could have made it better and then there might be one or two projects that maybe yeah you should toss yeah so, just depending on how it went and like an accurate um reflection on why like why were we using this tool did we do this because we saw it demoed at a conference and we just mm. wanted to and in that case uh yeah chunk it um <laughs> But if, if it is something where you like, no, I needed to get this across and I needed this kind of a dynamic way to, to get that information distributed and assessed, meet, meet with your ID and make sure that there wasn't some piece of it that didn't go wrong. Well, and, and don't, going back to the actual question about navigation and, and some of these things that you, that you layer on, where do you look back at things and, and work with the faculty member and say, this was a navigation concern, this was a concern with the instructions? Or, or like you, you highlighted, the instructions themselves were missing that rubric piece. So they could never, the instructions could never be as good as they could be if you also added a rubric. So I guess kind of right. what's, your, what's your methodology for, for, for breaking that down when you come back to them? Yeah, and I think navigation is a really sore spot. That's probably where most of my faculty really are nervous. It's very different, and I speak from experience in this because I, I did. I came from K through twelve background. I taught for five years in in the classroom in high school, 
And I think one of the hardest things for me in transitioning to ID was realizing that a lot of the things that I did in the classroom, I really had to think creatively about how I was going to arrange that in an online course so that it made sense because I'm not there to tell the students, okay, click the thing. Um, like I, I was able to, when I was using Google classrooms, for example, in my English course, I can't do that. I'm not standing over them to hold their hand and say, okay, you're going to click the thing. It has to be intuitive and there has to be enough instruction for them to do that. And I think as IDs, it's our responsibility in some ways to help the faculty get through that and to inform them. Now, whether they listen to us or not, you know, that doesn't mean that you're a good or a bad idea if they don't. That, that comes with time and practice and developing those relationships. But I think that a well laid out course in terms of a simplistic design that has good, solid bones, that has solid instructions that are straightforward, we don't have to boil the ocean, you know? It, well, and truthfully, and I see a lot of faculty, it's not that they don't do the work, it's that they overkill, right? On the navigation, they'll have 52 things on the sidebar. Nobody's going to click that stuff. Like four things on the sidebar, five things on the sidebar, and we can rearrange the content to make it work for you, you know, but it, it has to be, you know, I tell them it's like when you go to shop online, right? So when you go to Amazon for the first time, it's a little bit overwhelming. If you don't know what you're looking for, if you're just there to browse, there's like 9,000 things you can click on. And I said, those are your students. So if you want them to click on a thing, and you want them to shop for, you know, flannel shirts, then make sure that they're looking for the flannel shirt um, and not for like headphones. So, you know, it, it seems to work, you know, I, I don't know. The, the analogy seems to work for them. I don't know why, but it, it has. And so, you know, I tell them to simplify and I work with them. Sometimes they even draw it out on like a pad of paper before I get them into an LMS because the LMS is like, oh no, shiny new thing. So I'll draw it out on a pad of paper first and say, okay, here's where we're going to lay this out for, you know, the students. And they're like, you know, it's, it's less scary for them. I think, especially for some of the older faculty that are more hesitant to tech. Um, I think I was, ta was I talking to, about drawing, I think I was talking about drawing it on a yes. pad first. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that it, you're doing the same thing with the faculty that you want the faculty to do with the students. You're removing the, the paralysis that you get from the abundance of choice breaking it down for just what you want them to, to do, which is exactly what you want them to do with the students too, with or without. Right. So yeah, I mean, you are, you're, you're taking away part of the voice and choice. You want them to have some autonomy in what they're choosing to do. It's still their course at the end of the day. You don't ever want them to feel like it's not their course because you want them to have, you know, some skin in the game for sure, because at the end of the day, they're teaching it and, and they need to feel like it's theirs and they need to be comfortable in it. But, you know, your job as an idea is, is to find the balance between making them comfortable and making it usable. And so 52 things on a sidebar, not usable, but if we can get them to the point where we're drawing it out for them first and explaining, okay, we're doing five things on the sidebar so that your students can figure out where it is. And we're developing this folder system so your students can chunk this information. Those are keywords for faculty, especially ones that have education background. And for the ones that don't, that are from like business or psychology or, 
Um, I've worked with ones from political science. They still understand enough about learning for the most part that they can understand that students need stuff that is supposed to be done together to be in a similar place so that they can do it. And I think that, you know, we forget sometimes as as IDs, and this is me too, you know, sometimes as well. When I came into ID work, I thought I was going to have all the answers because I had done all of these education courses at that point on ID work, and I, I had all this extra training, and I was enrolled in all this extra training, and I, you know, I'm working on a doctorate. And what I realized, those things are important and they're good. Like, please don't get me wrong. They're good and they're helpful. But at the end of the day, faculty are people. They are human beings with their own, you know, work needs and people needs and fears and desires and drives and motivations. And we forget that. We, we think that they're like these machines that are going to just magically create courses and they're going to teach and they're not going to have any feelings about you know, they're just going to agree with us or they're going to fight us. And that's, that's not the case. We really, we forget that they have feelings about things. And that's a problem. That's a problem in ID right now that we're seeing. And so a lot of times I talk to other IDs and they're, they're saying, oh, well, my faculty are terrible and they're fighting me. And I said, well, I get that. And, and some of my faculty do, and there's just nothing I can do about it. After eight years, I'm like, welcome. This is my TED talk. Um, but at the end of the day, I've found that in 90% of those cases, if I sit down and I say, okay, what is it really? Let's get to the bolts. What is it really? That's the problem. And so during the pandemic, that became an even bigger strength, I think, for me personally, because we did. We moved a bunch of courses online. I had a bunch of faculty that have never taught online before, and they're freaking out. <laughs> and some of them at least had some technology background and some of them called me and they're like, Heather, I don't even know who you are, uh, but I, I can type on a keyboard. That, that is the extent. I actually had one faculty say that I'm not making fun. Um, she, she called and she said, I can type on a keyboard. This is the extent of my IT training. I said, great, cool. We can work with that. I said, you can turn the computer on. You can use the keyboard. You can use a mouse. We're, we're good. You have the basics. And so with those faculty, you develop kind of a game plan for scaffolding, essentially. So for the first couple of weeks with the faculty that were, you know, maybe not so tech savvy, I was like, okay, these are the things we really need to use. So for example, they were teaching face-to-face -face before and then they're transitioning. So I said, okay, we're gonna use Zoom. Zoom is an easy product to use. Zoom integrates with our LMS. There's good instructions. And so I was able to get one or two or sometimes even three of them in a meeting together. And we would spend like 30 minutes going through the basics of Zoom. I'm not talking like we're changing backgrounds or doing anything crazy or boring or, you know, none of that. <laughs> no editing, no nothing. Like, can you set up a Zoom meeting? Can we put it in the LMS? Can we send it to the students? Can we do basic troubleshooting? And honestly, I think that approach was the best approach because once I got them started and they realized that they could still deliver the content, they calmed down. It brought their anxiety down. And then they were a lot more open and some of them even more excited to be like, oh, well, you know, what else do you have? What other shiny things can we use? Oh, well, okay. Now I have shiny things for us to use. And so some of them 
even after we transferred from the pandemic, where a lot of them are meeting face-to-face again, they've kept those tools. And so I think in a way, as bad as the pandemic has been, and it, it has been a horrible experience, it's, it's terrible, um, you know, from a global perspective, in some ways, it's, it's given us an opportunity to work with even more, you know, fellow designers, with even more faculty, and for designers to really get outside of the box and think about how we're doing our jobs. And so for me, it was a great opportunity to rethink training because I was working with individuals that were willing to do the work, but were thrust into it unexpectedly. And what I found is that they were really motivated to do it. They were just really afraid. And so once we, we got over that plateau, whatever the plateau was, and it wasn't the same for everybody, right? There are some that are still like Zoom is the absolute, that's it. And that's okay. Um, as long as we can get to the students. So what I, what I really like about the way that you approach the faculty is, and I, I have a feeling it's the same way that you approached your students and you're a relationship builder. And I see that in just about everything that you do. And so I don't know if that type of ID is a unicorn. I don't know if that's a, well, I mean, in, in all sincerity, if as an ID, you don't possess the ability to forge relationships, you're gonna have a hard time. Yeah. Like legit, you're going to have a hard time. Um, so I, I, it, the whole, the whole purpose of our podcast is we're looking for solutions, right? So if you're one of those people who maybe is a little bit socially awkward or doesn't know how to, um, doesn't know how to approach the faculty, do you have any tips or tricks on how, how to meet them where it's comfortable. And I have a follow-up question to that. What do you do with faculty that starts calling you at 10 p.m. at night? Because I know that happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm still working on that last part. Um, so for the first part, it's, yeah. So there's a couple of things you can do. So I'm all about problem solving. It didn't used to be that way. When I came in, I, in truth, like full transparency, because I'm, especially over the last several years, I've, I've gotten into a place where I believe strongly in full transparency. It, it took me a long time to get comfortable and enough in my own skin to be comfortable enough with the faculty to just walk in and be like, hey, what's, what's up? What are we doing? And what I mean by that is you you have to be confident in your abilities as a designer. You know, you have the skills, you know what you're doing. Tell yourself that every day. I mean that sincerely, you have the skills and you know what you're doing. And I think sometimes we have this imposter syndrome as IDs where we're like, well, we're not really teachers and we're not really tech people. So like, what are we? And you're dealing with people with PhDs who and, will occasionally try to railroad right over you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm like, eh, PhDs are, I mean, they're fabulous and they're wonderful and I'm finishing one right now, right? Like, so I've obviously done everything but finished this dissertation, which I have now written, it seems like five times. Um, but truthfully, PhDs are, are about being smart, but they're really about tenacity. 
They're about sticking with something. And so just because they're a PhD in, I don't know, biochemistry doesn't mean that they're a PhD in teaching online. That's your job. So don't let them railroad you. There's, there's a line between providing information to them and being railroaded by them where they're just like, get out. And sometimes it takes a couple of semesters, you know, and you're like, okay, you want to be like that? That's fine. You don't have to, whatever. You don't have to work with me this semester, figure it out. And I guarantee you when it blows up, they will call, they will call 37 times. They will do that. Um, you know, and then in terms of, you know, just being yourself, you know, finding, finding yourself in, in the job. And, and taking real joy in it because you need to be passionate about this job to do the job. It, it's a lot like teaching. We don't do, we don't become teachers to make money in case anybody's watching this that thinks teachers make loads of money. It's a lie. <laughs> okay. We do it because we love our students and IDs do this job because we love learning. We love students and we love technology. And this is our way of contributing in, in my case, higher ed. But even in a corporate level, it's our way of contributing information to people to make them more effective and make them better at their jobs within their communities. Um, you know, even even forensic scientists, doctors. You know, we provide training in those cases too to make people more effective, so that they make less mistakes, so that they know what they're doing, so that they're confident in what they're doing. And so, it's a very important component of learning is us. So, so let's talk boundaries now, Heather. Yeah. Let's talk so boundaries. Because as an ID, just last night, I'm getting phone calls eight, nine o'clock at night. How do you how do you still support your faculty without running yourself into the ground? Um, so this is something I'm still working on. Uh, you know, eight years into the job. And within the last six months, I've actually put down better boundaries than I ever have within seven and a half years because the pandemic really brought to light how much I needed those boundaries. And, um, you know, in an effort of transparency too, I've got some like underlying health things too that I have to be extra aware of because I do run down faster. And so I have to work smarter, not harder sometimes because my body's not going to keep up. And so there's a, you know, you have to find where your line is. Now I'm not saying I don't meet with faculty after hours because in my particular case, I have some faculty that are in unique positions where they work in, you know, within health organizations, they work for hospitals. They have very strange hours where they can't talk to me during the day. Adjuncts. You know, they teach online, yeah. exactly. They're adjuncts. We have a lot of adjuncts in my colleges. They teach, you know, online in the evenings predominantly because they are working in hospital settings where, I mean, they can't pick up a phone at 2 p.m. and say, hey, Heather, I have a problem that we need to talk about right now. No, they're dealing with, with people that really need help. And so I'm okay with that as long as I have developed a boundary where they're calling me in advance to set those appointments and they're saying, hey, look, I need to talk to you. Can we meet at, you know, 7 30 8 o'clock because I am at work until 7 because I'm working in the you know suicide ward whatever it is that week I'm fine with that because I understand you know again that's about building those relationships and being flexible however I also have a faculty this semester that likes to call me like 12 times a week not okay <laughs> it's not okay 
and I don't always answer her, you know, I allow her, if she text messages me or something, I will text her back and I will say, Hey, I will answer this in the morning. That has become my, my go-to because there is a point when it becomes, I don't want to say harassment because that's not what I mean, but it becomes harassing and stressful. And when you're stressed like that, you're not going to do your best work. You're going to be frazzled. And sometimes it's better to just leave it till the morning. It's still going to be there. The problem is still going to be there at, at seven or eight, whenever you start working in the morning. So unless the universe is going to blow up, which in the faculty's mind, everything is the universe blowing up, but unless the universe is actually going to blow up and you as the expert can figure that out, leave it till the morning. You know, you have a family, you have a community you have stuff that you like to do. You might have underlying health or, or, you know, mental health, physical health things that you're, you're struggling with and fighting and being a warrior about every day. And it's important to take care of you because you can't pour from an empty teacup, or as my roommate says, an empty whiskey glass, um, something stronger. <laughs> you know, you uh, you made me think that, um, when you're dealing with people that have no work-life balance, like adjunct faculty that work at multiple institutions or have a full-time day job and work at an institution, right? They've got no boundaries per se that we can uh, out identify outside. So I, I, you, what you're doing there, I think you have to meet them. You have to meet them at the boundary between work-life balance is what you're doing in those text messages where you're saying, yes, I got your message. I'm acknowledging the relationship that we have and I will do this for you tomorrow. Whereas I think some people would say, um, I'm not even going to respond to the text or the email. And then I'll respond in the morning. And that's not wrong either. That's just a different person building a different style relationship with that faculty member. And then that faculty member will say, okay, great. Like he's got it. And if, if that relationship continues along that path and then that faculty member says, oh, okay, I know if I email him at 7 PM, he's not going to answer me. So I'm going to call him too then then you need to meet them at the boundary between the work-life balance because they didn't they didn't understand the relationship that you were trying to build um so I and in also terms been... of relationship too thomas because you bring that up but it's a good point those relationships if they have good relationships with you they're less likely i've found to disrespect your boundaries if you set them and I didn't realize this for a long time in the job, but I've started to now. So I've started to tell the faculty like, hey, it's after hours for me. So like, is this an emergency? Because like, I'm with my family. And it's not that they mean to be rude. I get this with the adjuncts a lot. It's really not. And I, what I've realized is that what you were talking about is true. They just jump from job to job because that, that's what they're doing. Um, I probably do this a lot too when I'm working on dissertation stuff. Uh, you know, you just keep going from one job to the other. And so they don't even realize sometimes what time it is. Like I had one last week and she's like, oh my God, what time is it? I said, it's 8.30. And she did have a legitimate issue. And I said, let's go fix it real quick because it's it's not that big of a deal like in terms of me fixing it, but it will be a big deal for your students and you will have 52 emails in the morning. So like, let's go fix it. Um, but she didn't even realize truthfully what time it was because she had just come out of the hospital and she called me because she saw all these emails from the kids and didn't realize. And so, and she apologized to me, but in building those relationships too, you start to realize like some faculty, when they call you or email you that late, you're like, oh, this is a real problem because you never, they never do that. 
So that's that's one of the other things I wanted to um, to talk to you about. So you have some faculty that will take advantage of ID services. And if I'm a new ID and I come in and I don't know, hey, you know, how much am I supposed to do? And then you have the... Um, Um, I tell them, you know, here's the expectation. This is what I do. This is what a TA does. This is what your admin does. Um, and I, I lay it out pretty clearly for them now because I, when I first started, I did do way more than I should have. And I started to burn out truthfully. I became the TA. Um, you don't want to do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't become a TA. You're not a TA. If you are grading, you're doing it wrong. Uh, you know. We are responsible for making sure their grade centers work, not for putting in the grades. So, you know, you need to firmly, again, I keep saying boundaries, but it is, it's, it's boundaries. And if they ask you to do things that are uncomfortable to you, or you don't feel that's part of your job set, you say, Hey, I'm really sorry. That doesn't feel like part of my job set. I think you should contact blank. Is it somebody else's job? You know, so if it's someone else you can refer them to, that's always better because you always want to leave a problem with a solution, right? So here's a representative that can provide you with the solution. Um, if not, then you say, hey, that is the responsibility of the faculty. You know, you are you are employed as a faculty here and, and that that is something that our faculty historically have done. If you have questions about that, you can contact another faculty member or a chair, you know, those, those are kind of the best ways to do that and to give them another point of contact. Now, if they fight you on it, you go above and hopefully you have good upper management that's going to support you. Now, that doesn't always happen, right? And I, I totally get that. So I've been in those situations too. And, and in those situations, you just have to put, keep putting your foot down because the minute that you give in, and this is from personal experience because I did it um, for the first four years of my career, the minute you give in, it's like, give a mouse a cookie. Uh, all of a sudden they've got the whole jar and you have become the baker and that's all you do all day is PA for this person. So don't do that. You know, have enough self-respect to, to say no, you know, to those things. So we've mostly focused on faculty, but if you are an ID in the corporate design world as well, your faculty is your subject matter expert. So um, there are some slight deviations where that's concerned, but you mentioned a contract and I think that is something that, that we need to elaborate on. So um, Heather, could you give us any tips and pointers on, things that you think you should include in your contract that will help you deal with SMEs because an, a, an SME, a reluctant SME can really put you off your deadline. I mean, you're at the mercy of these people and yet you as the contractor are still responsible for delivering the content. So do you have any suggestions on how to keep those SMEs on track um, so that you are able to meet your deadlines? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I start off by saying working in a corporate or a government environment as opposed to an education environment, those are two different beasts. And I think I mentioned that earlier. 
the concepts are the same, but how you do things are very different. And so when you're working with corporate SMEs, you need to have kind of safeties built in to your contract or, well, and not an or, and with your project management, you know, individual, whatever it is that their position is called um, on the corporate side. So there should be a contact person for you that you report to and that SME is providing information to possibly as well. That's kind of looking at the project as a whole with all of the components and all of the entities involved. And so you need to make sure that you protect yourself in a lot of ways because it does, it destroys a deadline and then it becomes ultimately your fault, which isn't really fair. And I've had personal experience where I've had a multitude of projects derailed because project managers on that side either didn't understand how that process was going to work and how much time it takes to build a course or didn't realize that the SME was, you know, giving us content that was unusable or wasn't in the right format or wasn't quite done. And as many of you know, as, as an ID, or if you don't, and you're new to this, it's almost impossible to build it that way. Um, building as you, know, you go is way harder. Is, looking back at your contract or lack of contracts in the past, what would be the ideal part that you would want to put in there to say, I know I can no normally only manage my relationship as an ID with the person who's paying me, but what would you put in there to say, I want to have contact with the SME, or I want to make sure that the content, you know, matches some kind of, of development dynamic that I, if I don't see that, then I want to be able to leave the job. Yeah, um, you can do that. There's a clause, right? And so when I've worked with like certain government entities, they're called cadres. Um, and those are your subject matter experts. And a lot of times you do meet with the cadres and you work with them in a group. If you don't have that kind of situation, because sometimes you don't, you can build into your contract, um, which I would highly recommend. Number one, you, you bill by the hour, you don't bill by the project. If it's a build as you go project, especially, and they're not handing you contact that's been vetted, you build, you build by the hour because you're going to have changes. And if you don't bill by the hour, you're not going to get paid for the entire, and you know, the entire package, which is a problem. So that's number one. Number two, I would build in a clause. I highly recommend that there is a clause in there that says if they change the content, that they have to pay you for the changes. So if you have to go back and change something within the content, and it's a significant change, then they need to pay you for the hours that go with that. Um, and I have an example where I, I did, I had an SME that changed a significant amount of content. That's totally fine. It's not an issue, right? Like they change their minds. I respect that, you know, as a professional, like they want it to be the best they can be. I'm not upset at all, but you know, I didn't protect myself in that situation. And so I didn't get to bill for those hours. And it took me another 25 hours to rebuild those modules. Um, because I was working in storyline, I was working in a variety of other products and it had to be changed everywhere. So protect yourself from those situations. Also, you can request in your contract or with that project manager when you get hired that there needs to be somebody that's going to vet the content and you can ask who that representative is going to be. And if it's not vetted, then, you know, you need to find out who you talk to that's above them. So the minute that something's not vetted and it's wrong and you get it and it's a hot mess, if you feel like it's, 
not worth your time at that point. It's not usable. You need to stand up for yourself and say, hey, I'm, I'm a contractor. This doesn't work for me. Um, you know, and, and it's okay to do that. And I think for a long time, I felt like I couldn't do that because I didn't, you know, necessarily have the experience. And we get into this headspace where we're like, oh, but we can't ask them for that. And things aren't going to be perfect. And they're not like little things that's different. But if you're having major problems, you need to contact a project manager before, not after and say, hey, this is a problem. This is a problem that changes your deadlines. And I think that that's the way, especially in corporate, like if you tell them, it's changing your deadlines and it's costing you money because you're not vetting this content or because your SME doesn't have it together. Or, you know, in this case, the SME did. It just, you know, your SME is making changes, which has changed the timeline. That's different. I mean, that, that really does spur them to do things sometimes. And sometimes they're like, you know what, it's fine. And in those cases, great. Like, that's not a problem. Some companies are okay with that. But if they're on strong timelines... And that's the expectation and you're getting paid for that. then make sure that that's what's in your contract and always, always, always have a contract always. And if it's for a set amount of hours, that's fine too, but you don't go above those hours. And if you do, you sign another contract. So I highly recommend that everything is in writing. Everything is laid out. Um, I would even recommend sometimes like if you're not familiar with contractual agreements, you know, you can sometimes even have attorneys like, do a free consult with you um, or like even have like there's like products like legal shield where you can pay like 30 bucks for like a month and they'll look at your contract and tell you if there's any problems with you you can talk to like a real attorney um you know and sometimes it's worth it if it's enough money if it's a big enough contract to have somebody do that and i i'm not saying do that if you're familiar but if you're not you know my first contract i i definitely should have done that um so i you know those are you know things that you can absolutely do. Sometimes cities also have those services for people where you can walk in and, and sometimes they're free. Um, you know, where I live, there's actually a, a center where you can walk in apparently, just found out about this, and you can take like basic things and they'll they'll look at them for free within reason and just kind of walk you through the basics of whatever it is. Um, and so maybe, you know, check that out too. But it's the other thing that I would recommend is that you need to understand who owns the content. So, and what I mean by that is you are building a product potentially within storyline, within, uh, you know, beyond, within whatever it is that you're building it in. And you need to understand, you know, do they own the content and everything that's in it at the end of it? Do I co-own part of that content because I developed it or maybe even co-wrote part of it? Some of you might be developing curriculum. Um, that happens too. You know, you need to understand what that is and if they're going to own it you know at the end of it then you also and more need to importantly sell it and if they're to going other to other entities where i'm getting at if they're going to own it you may want to charge a, a bigger price tag number one and or you also don't want to be liable for the content that's within it itself because some other sme wrote that so you may want that um so that's number two you know, and number three, you don't want to be responsible for edits unless they're going to pay you for them. So make sure those things are all in your contract. That is all absolutely great advice. Yeah. Yeah, I only have a couple of, of questions because I know we're out of time. Um, would you consider requiring some kind of a communication strategy in your contract? Where like you want to be able to ask somebody questions at certain times and certain uh, development points 
And if you can't get those answers, then that is an automatic flag of a delay in the project. Um, and then <clears throat> we, we need to have you back because obviously there's so many more questions. Hopefully I'll be here for that show. Um, <laughs> because I also want to want to talk to you about uh, templating uh, courses with faculty and helping them understand. Um, I just saw some some interesting stats talking about students really respond to courses that are navigationally the same at an institution across uh, different disciplines. Um, and then working with the faculty, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but the main difference between I would think like industrial or corporate work and, and academic work is this massively stretched out timeline where you're working with the faculty over a period of years. And then the, um, the, the final parting shot, I guess, is would you ever consider including dispose dates in the products that you make for people and say, hey, I'm building this for you guys, but based on what I, I learned from the disposable design people, I should definitely be suggesting that you throw this away and update and rebuild your content in 2027 or, or what have you and, and include that, not necessarily in the contract, but in your design methodology when you talk to the SME. You say, when, when, do, when do they really need to stop sending people through this training? Yeah, and I can definitely answer two of those real quick. And then the middle two are probably like another session, which I'm happy to come back uh, if you'll have me. So, you know, in terms of disposed dates, um, a lot of times, particularly with government and with corporate specific um, trainings, I have found that they update a manual. It, it's normally based around like a manual or documentation or a training that's coming down from a government entity, from a state, from a corporate entity to its employees, to its trainees, and that it's updated on some kind of schedule. It's not normally just a one and done. You know, so for example, I have a corporate, you know, training that's kind of going on right now that I'm sort of looking at maybe doing, and they seem to update every five years. So they're at their five-year mark and they need updated corporate training. For some of the government stuff, uh, it ranges every three to five years. And normally with government entities, you have an auditing process. So there is a, there's supposed to be a government entity above that government entity that's hiring you that's supposed to be auditing to make sure, number one, that people are doing the training and that it's effective as part of your needs assessment um, and also part of the, you know, back-end assessment. Yeah, very important. And number two, to also make sure that it's being updated and that it's current. So have I had clients that haven't updated based on my recommendations? Absolutely. It's expensive to hire designers. Um, we're worth it. But it is expensive, uh, and you have to find a designer that has the skill set to do what they need to do. And, and designers, that's a broad term. So we do a variety of things, and not every designer does development. Not every designer does curriculum. Not every designer does it all. So, you know, you have to find somebody that does all of those things that they need. And the more things they need, the more expensive that you get, as it should be. So because you have more training. So they don't always, and you can recommend disposable dates. I, I highly recommend that you gently do that, but you have to be careful what rope you walk with that because at the end of the day, they own potentially own the content unless you co-own it. If you co-own it, I would highly recommend that you do that because then you've written part of the curriculum and you know when it should be updated. Well, not to mention if you have a good relationship with that client, you want yes. them to come back to you for the next 
the next exactly. iteration of the training. Exactly. Um, and maybe you're supporting it through that, those iterations of those trainings too. You might be doing, you know, um, client management through that or LMS development throughout those trainings, or you might be developing multiple trainings. So you may still be there or you may be employed by them. So, you know, ultimately, like maybe it's a contract to hire position. So, you know, those things are all considerations. It doesn't always go, you know, south, but definitely think about, you know, what your audience is for sure. So, yeah, that I would, I would definitely answer. Um, and then the other thing, Thomas, what was the other question you had about uh, contract work? You had one other at the beginning. What oh, you were talking about needs assessment. You were talking about needs assessment and about talking, having someone, you know, a communication line. So communication lines are super important um, when you're dealing with any client, whether it's faculty, whether it's, you know, upper management, whether it's corporate, whether it's government. Sometimes you don't have that luxury as an ID. And so you, again, have to pick your battles, but it's always good to have at least one person you can check in with. Now on a corporate or government level, you're not going to be able to do that probably, you know, daily or weekly. It's just not going to happen. So you're going to have to build those checkpoints in. So try to find good stop points when you storyboard your concept out. Try to find good checkpoints so that you're not super far along in the content, but you're far enough along that they can get a good idea of what you're building. So, and then get some feedback if it's possible. That way you don't get into building something that's very complex or very complicated, especially with things like simulation. That's, that's a big one, right? You don't wanna build an entire simulation project, which takes many, many hours and then then not like it. <laughs> so maybe build, you know, half of it, for example, maybe half of the first module and say, hey, can we have a quick meeting or hey, let me send you an example output. Can you send me back an email? Because that might be the best way to do it at that time and and tell me kind of what your feedback is. And if it's not a lot of feedback, it's like, no, it's good. It's what we want. Great. And if it comes back and it's like, you know, red ink to death, then, then you might be like, hey, let's have an actual meeting because this is a lot, you know? So you you kind of, again, you have to feel out your, your clients. So it's, it's about developing those relationships. What a great wrap up. Yeah. Relationships. That's yeah, what relationships. it's all about. It really is. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this morning. And we are absolutely going to have to have you back. Yeah, my pleasure. You are a wealth of absolutely useful knowledge. So <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Oh, it was a blast. It's my pleasure. And I hope to see you guys soon.